So we are back with another episode. To be back with this episode that I've been begging for for a long time. Please, Mormons, here we are. <laughs> and it's going to be like a two-part episode. It has to be a two-part episode. You can't cover it all in one part. Well, no, we can't. Uh, so today we're going to kind of present the first half of this, and then next week we'll be back to kind of... Um, I don't want no spoiler alerts. I don't want to tell you where we're going to end today, but next week we'll kind of finish it. Um, and it's interesting. I mean, it's, I am a little surprised at how many people really want us to talk, to tell them more about religion, particularly in the United States. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm happy about it because I think that there's a lot to say. And I think that there are a lot of things about religion in this country that help explain why we are the way that we are. And so mm-hmm. kind of like what I said last week is like, you can't really understand American culture without really like understanding cults and stuff. And it, the, the same goes for religion. I mean, even more so like you just can't really understand Americans, the 19th century, so many different developments in our history that are, you know, cultural, legal, all kinds of things that are so deeply connected to religion and religious movements that to talk about them, it's not just sensationalizing or trying to just, you know, pick apart something, but to try to really truly understand what's going on here. And I think, you know, a discussion of um, LDS, Latter-day Saints, as they want to be called, and not Mormons, um, I think it's a really important part of the discussion in American history. Well, I mean, the nation at fundamentally at its core is a religious nation. Um, no, I don't think so. Meaning a nation filled with religions. A nation filled with religions. Yeah. But to me, I think we've discussed this. I'm not sure, but at its core, like the founders weren't religious. I mean, and there wasn't a lot of religious fervor at that time. It was Which after is, the founding right, that we get right. the Second Great Awakening. I mean, now people did come to this country because of religion. Right. And then there are a lot of different branches of religion. And I think we become a deeply religious country. But I would say like the founding of it, not so much. Okay, that's fair. And we do promise we are going to do an episode explaining the Second Great Awakening. Um I'm so surprised we haven't done that yet. I do that every semester and I get mixed up. Like, did I do that in class or did I do that on the podcast? (laughs) So, well, let's get into it today. Uh, Part one of our uh, two-part series on the history of Mormonism in America. Welcome to An Incomplete History. I'm Hillary. And I'm Jeff. And we're your hosts for this weekly history podcast. The history of Mormonism. So we briefly talked about this, and I and I kind of want to lay out a plan of attack here. So I read a lot of the things I read uh, this week, kind of prepping for this episode and going back over kind of some old notes that I had. Here's the issue: whenever you're doing kind of a history of re- of a religion, so you have kind of three different levels of history moving. 
So you have the institutional history. So this is the official LDS church's views on things, of how things played out. And we can kind of read these, right? These are in publications, talks, specifically for the LDS. It's in kind of art and official publications, general conference proceedings, stories that the church kind of tells. That official view oftentimes bears little to no resemblance to the actual verifiable history of something. That doesn't and it often leaves out a lot of details about what right. we do and, know to be true. Right. And this isn't about something being true or false, right? This is just about, look, we have verifiable historical data. So if it's not true or false, then what is it? Uh, well, I don't know. So you've got that kind I of... I mean, if you have verifiable historical data and we know, like, you know, we have records that state you know, so-and-so was arrested on this day for this crime. Like, isn't that just true or no? Yes, it is true. So we have like the and institutional that, something history. like that could be left out. Right. The we have, the, history, we right? have the institutional history. And then we have this kind of things that are based on documents from the past. Like, you know, this person was born here. This person moved here. This person died. Uh, eyewitness accounts of events happening. Uh, multiple things that corroborate something occurring. And that's actually more where historians, that's where we operate generally, right? Because the, the institutional history, the institutional perspective is kind of, it's, uh, it is imagined. And I don't mean imagined in the way that it's totally make up. I just mean that it's constructed and imagined as something that, consciously leaves some things out, consciously brings things in that aren't necessarily verifiable. And that's everything, right? It's all institutional history. Right. That's this government is, history. That's nation history. Right. And that's what a historian's job is to do is to kind of dig in and say, okay, what is being left out? What aren't we talking about? Um, what was kind of told differently? And that's what creates, you know, nationalism. That's why a lot of elementary school curriculum is very nationalistic, like that kind of stuff. And so it's no different for a religion, a history of religion, Right. Right. Because I guess what I'm trying to say is like we're not picking on LDS. Like this is right. Just well, like and it's historians. Right. It, it's and it's prickly in the case of religion because people have very strong opinions about religion, whether they're Beliefs, it's their yeah. own or it's mm -hmm. the issue with the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints is that you have a third strand of history, which is Joseph Smith the founder's own views and kind of narrative that he constructs. You don't think that that falls under the institutional history? Not necessarily because they actually, okay. there are parts of his story that are excised from the institutional history. Which is so fascinating because he is viewed as a prophet. So you've got, right. So you've got these three things. No, com no comment. It, well, I, we're going to talk about that, right? We're going to talk about that. But it's, it's, so you've got these three threads, and occasionally they agree on something. But most of the time, 
the best you can hope for is only two of them agreeing on something. Right. And there are, there are moments where none of, where all three are saying something very different. Mm-hmm. So it's complicated. And, and contentious. And it's contentious and, too. Yeah. So I want to start with an example and we'll kind of go back to this. I don't know what your plan is, but I'm excited. <laughs> so I want to start with a concrete example, and then we can kind of talk and see how this works. And And I draw this from a couple of different um, treatments of Mormonism, the history of Mormonism. Joseph Smith translated an Egyptian funerary, funerary scroll in the early 1830s. Starting in, out of, in the 1820s. Right. Well, and he creates the Book of Abraham out of it. The Book of Mormon? No, no, no. The Book of Abraham. Which is part of the Book of Mormon. Okay. So he's when he starts in 1827, he finds these scrolls in 1824, but has right. to let them sit there for a while. Right. And then he goes back to them. So okay. his, according to Joseph Smith's view on how things worked, he gets this and he translates it. And the translation works. That's Joseph Smith's view. The official Latter-day Saint, the LDS Church's official view is that this scroll was lost at some point later, assumed to have been lost in the Great Chicago Fire, but found again in 1967. And the LDS says at that point, it doesn't matter whether or not the scroll, once we translate it, now that it's available for people to look at, says exactly what Joseph Smith says it says, because it's more about, quote, the book's status as scripture lies in the eternal truths it teaches and the powerful spirits it conveys. And the reason the LDS Church does this is because of that historian's view. So what happens is the scroll is re- it resurfaces in 1967, and it's known as the Joseph Smith papyri. And Egyptologists check it out and they say, yeah, it's it's an Egyptian relic. It's pretty common, though. It's not like these things were rare. But Egyptologists quickly say tr- Smith's translation has nothing to do with what this scroll actually says. Well, and wasn't it Martin Harris who was Joseph Smith's scribe? send a sample well, that's a, of this it. is a different thing those are the tablets that's, not the scrolls that's the ta- okay not the scrolls that's different okay it gets a little complicated right okay, so 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 here you have these three different views and they're all saying different things although i find it interesting the lds church does in the wake of the um the egyptologist looking at it in 2014 they issue this document called translation and historiosity of the book of abraham And they basically, they say the veracity of the book of Abraham cannot be settled by scholarly debate concerning the book's translation and historiosity. The book's status as scripture lies in the eternal truths it teaches and the powerful spirit it conveys. I mean, it's when you think of all of this translating that's taken place, it does take a pretty nimble mind to do this, right? Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, I think about that a lot of like, okay, so let's say, you know, the belief is that 
Joseph Smith is a prophet and is taking a literal translation. And he's looking, he's looking into a hat at a stone and it's telling him what it says, even though he's not even looking at the document. Um, and so, okay. The belief is that it's a prophecy. The, I guess historical interpretation is like, well, he, you know, created this story, but it's like, how intelligent are you to be able to just rattle off a gigantic story to a scribe? And I think about that a lot. I don't know. What do you think? Well, it's Hillary I and I have that. a Hillary and I have a shared love of a particular animated series. <laughs> I don't like Book of Mormon. Okay, but I'm talking about the animated series. Yeah, I know. I like that episode. Um, all of it's called All About Mormons. It's all about like Mormons. South Park episode. I love the end of it. It's very good. I don't like the Book of Mormon uh, musical, though. Um, so this South Park episode's from season seven. It's episode twelve. All about Mormons. If you want to watch it, I really like the episode. But uh, what came after it, the Book of Mormon musical that was written by Trey Parker and Matt Stone, I'm not a huge fan of. Um, but what were you going to say in relation to what I just said about it would take somebody pretty darn smart to be able to do this, right? Well, here's so here's the thing is I think if we go back to Joseph Smith and kind of the early part of his life, he is living in a period where the second Greg awakening is encouraging people to question religion as they've approached it before and embrace a more participatory form of Protestantism specifically. And again, I promise well, we're going to his family's involved in like the magical, like fortune hunters and mm -hmm. all that kind of stuff. But a lot of people feel connected. that. But a lot of people yeah. participate in that, right? So 1820, um, the Second Great Awakening is happening. You've got these kind of um, itinerant preachers are traveling the country. And Smith actually finds himself as a young teen. He's 14 at the time, living in a region of the Northeast called the Burned Over District. This is New York. This is kind of upstate New York. And he goes to pray in the woods. And this is Smith's own accounting of how things transpired. Again, so that, that specific form of historical narrative. And he wants, he prays to God to tell him, what religion should I practice? Because there are so many religions springing up at this moment. Mm -hmm. And it's a vision from God. And God visits him. So here is an important doctrinal difference between Mormonism and other Protestant faiths, as well as Roman Catholicism. Um, the Heavenly Father and His Son, Jesus Christ, both appear to Smith. Now, Mormonism preaches that there is that the Trinity is a Trinity, but it's a separate Trinity. And that's three different gods. Three different gods. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And that they are literally separate. They are not three and one and one and three. So then Mormonism is not a monotheistic religion. It's not at all. So then it's not Christianity. <clears throat> that, ex that, that argument's made by certain people, right? Well, I mean, so, you know, if you're thinking about the core tenet of Christianity, <clears throat> that kind of violates it right there. 
if that's the core tenet of Christianity. Well, I think it is. Okay. Well, <laughs> I, think, so, I mean, I think it's one of the biggest ones. I don't know. Well, so three, two of the three appear to Smith in this forest called the Sacred Grove. And mm-hmm. they tell him, you shouldn't practice any of these religions. That you actually are going to be the instrument for God's, God's restoration of uh, the original church. So what happens is this. He gets married. And in 1823, so three years later, he's about 17, very young man. Three years later, the angel Moroni appears, starts visiting Smith Mm -hmm. and telling him that there are these golden plates that talk about Jesus preaching to people in the Americas. And over the next four years, uh, Smith is instructed to go to this, uh, the hill Kumora and to learn from Moroni. And Moroni basically teaches and warns um, Smith from 1823 to 1827 and, and tests him as well. And finally, 1827, Smith is deemed kind of worthy to receive this knowledge. Moroni reveals the plates and actually gives him the tools to translate the Urim and Thummim. Do you know that they're said to be gold plates mm-hmm. that were buried and that he uncovered them and took them out by himself, but that the weight of those plates would have been over 200 pounds? Yeah. Was he a bodybuilder as well? Probably. And there's a story that someone tried to steal him from him and he ran with the plates. Mm-hmm. So like he's deadlifting and then taking off running with 200 over 200 pounds of gold plates with him. Anyway, <laughs> I, well, I just, these are just details. No, I know. I, I know. Very important to the I story. Know. I think it's very important. So the language of the plates is an unknown language called reformed Egyptian, which isn't a language which is not a language we know of. Right. Um, so he starts to translate this into English and he dictates them to his friend, Martin Harris. Yes. So over time they translate, he dictates these and they generate about 116 pages of text, but the two take a break at that point. Um, at this point, Moroni takes the plates as well as the Urim and Thummim. Harris is in possession of the transcription and he takes them home to his wife to show her. His wife, who is very frustrated by this project, who's like, why are you spending all this time doing this? Why are you giving this man money? What are you doing? Right? Mm Mm-hmm. And so what does she do when he brings the transcription of the 116 pages home? Well, according to the church, what happens next is lost to history. According to what you've read, what happens next? Of course. <laughs> this woman's my spirit animal because <laughs> she just tosses animal. it into the fire. <laughs> and she, I'm sorry, I love this. She goes, okay, 
So if this is really coming from God, then I'm just going to burn it and he can just translate it again. Right. Right. Gosh, that's something I would do. So Harris goes back to Smith and tells him the manuscript's been lost. And so Smith goes, okay, well, you know, I'm not going to retranslate it. I guess it's just lost forever. Then we just won't know that part of the story. It's fine. Well, he Let's says I have on. to pray to Moroni. I have to pray, and Moroni is going to tell me yeah. what to do. Moroni's like, hey, that wasn't that important part anyway. Right. So Moroni comes. Carry back- on with the story, Joe. Right. So Moroni comes back with the golden plates, um, and over the next kind of almost a year, I think it takes nine months. Um, he starts to bring more and more scribes in to help this translation project. And eventually they create the Book of Mormon. So in 1830, Joseph Smith has this second Testament of Christ. It's basically Jesus, once he left Jerusalem, comes over to the Americas and does some stuff over here. Okay. Now this to me is the most important part of understanding Mormonism and why to me it's such a problem. Okay. Or the LDS, because the idea is that, okay, Jesus comes over and, and proselytizes or preaches or whatever to native people who live in the United States, who Joseph Smith says are actually part of the 10 lost tribes of Israel. Because there were four waves of Jewish immigrants into the new world. Right. And that, you know, we lose these tribes, but actually they're not lost because they come over into the Americas thousands of years ago and they're living there. And so then Jesus knows that. So before Jesus goes up to heaven, he comes over to, you know, takes a little little detour over to um, North America and starts talking to the um, native people there who are two different groups called the Neophytes and the Lamanites. And they end up warring with one another and one is good and one is bad. Um, the neophytes are good and Lamanites are bad. Uh, the Lamanites end up winning. And so they're the only ones left over, but their punishment from God was to be dark skinned. So one of the core beliefs of Mormonism and of LDS is that if you have dark skin, you are cursed by God. Yeah. Yeah, that's a problem. To be fair, the LDS church is trying to reconcile this somehow. But that's a core belief of how the religion is even founded in the first place. So So that's that's a mess. So this is Smith's kind of message. And he actually starts to amass a group of disciples. And, you know, this Book of Mormon is viewed as a way to kind of expand people willing to listen to Smith as a prophet. In 1829, during the kind of final translation process of the Book of Mormon, uh, Smith and Oliver Cowdery, who's a close friend of Smith's, are visited by John the Baptist. And John the Baptist says, I am restoring the Aaronic priesthood. So this is the priesthood based on Aaron, who's Moses' brother. And I'm giving it to you too. So I am restoring this. You are now part of this. Two weeks later, Peter, James, and John, disciples of Christ, all visit him 
and his friend what Oliver. A popular guy. What a popular guy. And uh, conferred upon them the greater priesthood. So not just the Aaronic priesthood, but the greater priesthood, the Melch- Melchizedek priesthood is what they call it. And the two of them, Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery, become the first two elders of the LDS Church. So the church is incorporated April 6, 1830, and they move out of upstate New York into a neighboring, into uh, Kirtland, Ohio, and they start to actually create the contours of what Mormonism looks like. So they institute this thing called the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, but they also institute celestial marriage. Do you want to talk about celestial marriage? No, I'm going to let you talk about celestial marriage. It's plural marriage. It's plural. Yeah, okay. It's I, so it's polygamy. It's, it's polygamy. polygamy. Yeah. It's polygamy. It's a, it's a euphemism. Um, so. How many times was he married? According to himself or to his detractors? Oh, well, both, I guess. Because Brigham Young ends up married way more times than him, and he comes right. a little bit later, right? But so, yeah, they start talking. And the detractors start writing a lot of different, like, exposés about this. And it's kind of freaking people out because he not only – he doesn't just marry single women, he marries already married women and he goes around to like some of the leaders of the, in the early religion and says like, can I have your wife? And they're like, yeah, okay. And, and they just like give their wives to him and see, so this is a whole thing too. Like, listen to what I just said, like give their wives to him. Like where are women in all of this except just at the very bottom of this barrel, right? There's no respect. There's no, uh, you know, when we were talking about 19th century utopian societies, there was a lot more of an egalitarian nature to some of those that cropped up in trying to create utopia. And the Mormons are trying to create utopia, too. They call it Zion. But their utopia does not have any rights for women. And as a matter of fact, it's like women are just property. And so this plural marriage, celestial marriage, whatever, is so troubling to so many of the detractors because women are just being like used as chattel and, and w- people's wives are being just taken from them by Joseph Smith. And but, some agree to this and others don't. But that's not very different than what we see happening to women in some of the utopian communities that arise during the same time. Well, when we talked about Oneida, women had an agency in the, in the arrangements, right? They could mm-hmm. choose who they wanted to have sex with and when. And as a matter of fact, it was it, that decision rested entirely with women. So there are some utopian communities that are popping up that have this idea that utopia is egalitarian, but Mormonism mm-hmm. is not one of those. But you've got others where the women end up having to do all the work, but don't have a say in, in what goes on. I'm thinking about, you know, uh, harmony, new harmony. Mm-hmm. Um, the men were like, we're just going to come hang out. And the women are like, hello, you got work to do. Yeah. We're just going to yeah. do science. You do we're everything We're just going to do arts and literature. You do the farming. <clears throat> so the community does grow, though. It grows rapidly. It uh, does. And, and the question becomes here, why? 
what is so appealing in this that's leading to rapid growth? So what do you think? I mean, we're talking about the mid-1830s at this point. What do you think is so appealing? Well, when we've talked about um, utopian societies in the 19th century, cults of the 20th century, I you know, made this argument that people's willingness to join into these movements. And at this point, Mormonism is a cult movement, um, you know, centered around one per right, one man, prophet, Joseph Smith. It's most certainly a cult to me. And what I think, you know, people's willingness to participate in such a movement has to do with growing anxiety, social anxiety about other developments that are taking place. So we have the marketplace revolution happening right now. You have a bunch of people moving from the cities uh, into the cities from more agricultural settings. Um, there's a rise in crime. There's a rise in technological advances, transportation advances, communication advances. And I think that this rapid growth or shift in societal norms kind of encourages people to seek out something greater, something, mm -hmm. um, you know, religious in a way. I mean, I think people kind of cling to that, right? It's like religion in a foxhole sort of thing. Mm. Um, and I mean, I'm open to saying, you know, that's bullshit, but like, what do you, do you think that that's valid? I, I think people wanted something new and this was new and it seemed modern because it, it seemed to draw on new approaches to understanding the past. And Joseph Smith does seem to be a modern prophet because he keeps revealing things. So 1831, the, the headquarters of the churches moved to Kirtland, Ohio. That same year, Smith, though, reveals that he now can tell people where the Garden of Eden was located. And it was actually located outside Spoiler alert. Independence, Missouri. The, the Garden so of Eden was The New Missouri. Jerusalem will be established close to there, near Independence, Missouri. So a large number of church members leave Ohio and set up this new headquarters in Zion. So you have the, the headquarters, the official headquarters of the churches in Ohio. This second headquarter is in Independence, Missouri. And both communities are very successful financially. But what happens with the banking in Kirtland? Well, so there is a collapse. There's a financial collapse. There's Smith is involved in the banking structure at Kirkland, and there is a controversy that arises with that, and Smith leaves. Well, he his detractors his would say he absconded. But he made his own currency that was worth nothing. Right. That whole, you know, the idea is like fake is a $3 bill. Like that comes from that moment. It's like he starts making well, his own people, currency, but like taking people's money and saying like, oh, I'm going to make your own currency and it's worth nothing. And he gets arrested. Right. How many times he's arrested? I mean, there's, there is, uh, I think, debate over how many times he's arrested, but it's something, it's upwards of like 30, 40 times this guy's arrested in his life. Because he's a charlatan. He, was, he like swindles well, people all the time. Do you, 
is the lie is the division between profit and snake oil salesman really all that easily discernible? In this case, I think so. You're you're very skeptical. I feel like I am the. Uh, I mean, he. Yeah, you sound like you're like a LDS has paid you to do this or something. Well, I'm presenting you the official LDS story. No, I appreciate that. I appreciate that, um, and I think that our listeners will as well. But you know, time and time again, he is in trouble for fraud, for stealing from people. Mm-hmm. I mean, and early, early on, I mean, even before he starts this whole, I'm going to start my own religion thing, his family, you know, tells people, oh, we're going to go find, you know, buried treasure for you. And we have these stones, these seer stones where we can figure out where the buried treasure is. You have to give us X amount of money and we'll go find the treasure. And he gets caught for that and he gets put in jail for that. Right. I mean, it's like over and over and over again, he like comes up with this fantastic stuff. And then tells people, give me money and I'll help you. It's very similar to a lot of churches today, really. Send me money and I'll save you. And he ends up defrauding people all so the we're time. Gonna, right. So we're going to pause the official history of the church. And we're going to look at things that are verifiable in historical record and multiple kind of re- witnesses both within and outside of, of the Mormon church. Um, Joseph Smith, born in 1805 um, in Vermont. Vermont. Uh, his It's an agricultural family that has a lot of experience with failed business ventures. But one thing Smith grows up doing is during the summer, he and his brothers and his father would go out treasure hunting. Using, a lot of people did this at the time. A lot of people did it at the time. What specific tool did they use when they treasure hunted? The seer stone. Seer stones that when placed at the bottom of a hat would give you special abilities to see things. How amazing, like some illustrations from that time of like this guy just sitting with his head in a hat, mm-hmm. his face inside of a hat. So... I would say the the next formative moment in Smith's life is uh, the typhoid e- epidemic in 1812. Mm-hmm. Um, 6,000 deaths during the epidemic um, in kind of the Northeast, including infections in the Smith family. None of them died, but Smith almost gets his leg amputated. Do you think that that's a turning point for him spiritually? I think it is. Mm-hmm. I think it is. But it's a brand new type of surgery that saves his leg. So I think this is, I mean, this is what I think is interesting. Modernity is all over this religion in some ways. Mm-hmm. Um, but he walks with a limp the rest of his life. So the family eventually moves to Palmyra, New York, and... This Palmyra holds promise of being prosperous because it's very close to the still being constructed Erie Canal. It's also known as the burned over district in New York because of the insane religious fervor that went through there and all these different uh, religious sects or denominations or preaching and whatever else was going on there. Um, 
it becomes known as the burned over district, which we'll talk about in the second great awakening episode. But he is in the like heat of that moment. He's like right in the mix of this, you know, of that, all that religious fervor going on at that moment in this, in this location. So 1820, as we talked about with the official church view is when he starts to, to discuss, to converse, he's visited by God and Jesus and then starts to have these visitations the fall, you know, by 1823 by Moroni. But what happens between 1820 and when he, in 1830, his conversations with, with God and with Jesus and with Moroni, Smith doesn't give any account of what goes on in these, in these events and encounters until 1839. So it's not till much later that he actually tells people, well, here's what happened, and this happened, and this happened. Hmm. So it takes him a while to recount. Well. Well, I mean, you know what is, too, is like, it actually takes off as a religion, as a movement, and they want a history, they want a story, they want to know how, mm. you know, the origins and everything like that. So he's got to give them a story, right? Well, what we do know is in the historical record, March of 1826, there's a criminal complaint sworn out against Smith for the fraudulent use of seer stones. Mm-hmm. Basically using them to defraud people. Now, Smith admits he had used them in the past, but he says he stopped doing that. But that's how he uses It's exactly what he uses to read these tablets that he says he's found. He used the seer stones to do that, right? Ostensibly, yes. <laughs> um, I'm just reporting what's in the record. What's in the record? Right, so he lied. He said, I don't do that anymore, but he, but he does. We know right? he does because he says he does this to translate the Book of Mormon. And he's translating from this, what he claims to be an Egyptian hieroglyph. Now his translator, his, uh, his scribe, pardon me, Martin Harris, whose wife was very skeptical of all this. He says to him, hey, why don't you give me a sample of, you know, some of the hieroglyphs and i'm you know and so like he like writes it down gets to him he sends it to an egyptologist was it at harvard i think it might have been harvard i i think uh, yeah i think so i've got my facts mixed up if i'm wrong i apologize but he sends it to an egyptologist who's a professor and he looks at it and says this is somebody's scribbles this is not hieroglyphs this is made up he writes back to him. Well, <laughs> what we know historically is that June of 1829, Smith gets the copyright for the Book of Mormon. Um, we have documents where 11 witnesses signed sworn statements that they actually saw the golden plates Smith used to translate from which also they those disappear he gives them back to moroni right right moroni takes those when he goes um and three of them including harris and cowdery and remember oliver cowdery 
was kind of one of the pro one of the priests, one of the Aaronic priesthood members, um, saw that said that they saw an angel ostensibly Moroni bear the plates. Hmm. So they've disappeared. So those disappear. Smith publishes the Book of Mormon. There's 5,000 initial copies printed at a cost of $3,000 to print this initial run. Um, Do you know who gives them the money? Gives them the No. It's Harris. Harris takes out a mortgage on his farm. That's, yeah, that's what his wife's super mad about it. That's what I was, yeah, Mm -hmm. that's what I was saying earlier. Like, yeah, this poor guy, his wife is like, this is bunk. Yeah, and he takes out a mortgage on his farm and funds the whole thing. What's going on there? So, uh, the well, the Book of Mormon's published. It sells for $1.25 each. And Brigham Young actually comes into this now because Brigham Young's Methodist at this point, but is lives in Palmyra with his wife, reads the Book of Mormon, and to, within two years, he's baptized as Mormon. Um. But in April 6, 1830, we get the first organizational meeting of the the Church of Latter-day Saints, and about 50 people attend there. Um, And this is where their Smith and Cowdriers are ordained as elders. Um, And Smith is now called prophet, and the first four Mormon missionaries are sent out, including Cowdery, and they head west. No, no view on that. Why do they head west? Because they're being persecuted by, like, people are not pumped on this new group, right? Well, in June of 1830, Smith's arrested. for Again. For being a disorderly person for preaching. Right. Um. So do you know who they take the message to by October of 1830, the missionaries? Who they take it to, no. What do you mean? To Native Americans living in Ohio and Missouri. Because <laughs> they need to come back because they need to get their light skin back. If they just believe in Mormonism, right? If they just believe in Joseph Smith, then their skin can be lightened. Mm-hmm. Right? Well, there's that. And along the way, they start to pick up these other religions. So Sidney Ridgden is a Baptist minister. He decides to join the LDS and just bring his whole congregation with him. Hmm. I mean, he stands up there and he's like, one Sunday, he's like, guess what? We are not Baptist anymore. We're all Mormon now. The other thing about the very early Mormons is that Many of them were also Freemasons. Yes. Right? And Freemasonry started to actually be threatened by Mormons because it was a huge overlap in what they were doing. And Mormons tried to start kind of taking over the process and like the promotion process or however that works, right? Like they have like these ceremonial, they have like rituals of kind of like graduation to next levels, et cetera. And the Mormons who were also Freemasons, which we should definitely do an episode on Freemasons. 
Um, Add it to they the kind list. of just start promoting themselves. Yeah. They just start promoting themselves left and right. Right. And, and like the Freemasons are like, Hey, wait, no, that's not how we do it. And like, no, that is how we do it now. And so there's a lot of friction between the Freemasons and the Mormons who have this huge overlap at this time. So they're not just being persecuted by, it's not just people who are Baptist, like we're Mormons now. I mean, it becomes kind of a threatening movement and there people are uncomfortable by it all around, like wherever they go, people are pretty uncomfortable by this movement. Right. And, and at the same time, the church is forming. So Smith gets 65 revelations between 1831 and 1867, telling him how the church needs to be structured and addressing 1837, kind of, 1837. I mean, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, addressing kind of how the church needs to operate, how you uh, address problems within the church. Yeah. Cause once it becomes like, Oh wow, people are buying into this. I got to come up with some rules. So, right. Right. So Here's the problem. So they, there's this financial conflict brewing in Kirtland in Ohio, but in Independence, Missouri, there's conflict with the local community. And it's interesting because they start, they lay, I mean, Smith has already said this site near Independence is the New Jerusalem mm-hmm. where they're going to build this new community. It sounds very utopian, but he does not, move the headquarters from Kirtland, which I find very interesting. Why doesn't he move the headquarters? Because I think he thinks the situation's worse in Independence than it is in Kirtland. Well, and I think it is. I I think it definitely is. Yeah. But things aren't rosy in Kirtland either. March 24th, 1832, tar and feather smith. So tarring and feathering is a whole situation. I mean, when you think about like torture. Watch the watch the John Watch the John Adams series on HBO. There is a tarring and feathering scene that starts to capture the horror of being tarred and feathered. Most people don't survive it. Right. Because the burns are so severe. The tar Um, is hot. Tar doesn't flow unless it's hot. Boiling. So, I mean, for those of us who grew up on Bugs Bunny, tarring and feathering was funny because it was just like you coat somebody with the tar and then you put all these feathers on them and make them look ridiculous. Isn't that funny? It's supposed to be funny looking. Yeah. Yeah, That's not what it is at all. The the tar is boiling. And it's sticky. And it's sticky. You pour this boiling, sticky substance all over somebody's body, giving them third-degree burns, it basically, which many of them don't survive from. It basically sluices the skin off someone. Yes. Um, I mean, if so you've it's ever gotten a sugar burn. It's amazing survive that. Yeah. If you've, gotten, if you've ever gotten a sugar burn, like making candy or something in the kitchen, just imagine that over your whole body. Mm-hmm. So he actually survives it. Um, surprisingly enough, he doesn't let this. This is not a deterrent. Drive him out of Kirtland. And in fact, he starts to characterize this as persecution. The next year they start building the temple. Um, and the kind of the first collection after the book of Mormon of Smith's revelations is published called the book of commandments. Meanwhile, back in Missouri, um, a mob destroys their printing press. 
Um, and eventually they drive them out of the county and back into Clay County, Illinois. So at this point, they have three Mormon communities that have been set up. Mm-hmm. You have one in Missouri, Ohio, and Illinois. And it's things aren't going well in any of these communities. Yeah. Um, 1835, we get another collection of, of revelations called Doctrine and Covenants. Um, they kind of fold that Book of Commandments into this, as mm-hmm. well as seven lectures that Joseph Smith gives, and they're kind of packaged differently. But by 1836, they have to they move. have to leave Clay County mm-hmm. because they're being driven out, mm-hmm. right? And this is what I find interesting. Kirtland, they're able to kind of, even though they're subjected to kind of violence and persecution, they're able to kind of stay there for quite a bit longer, whereas the independence community is really forced to move frequently. And eventually the independence community moves to two counties in the northern part of Illinois that are much less populated to kind of escape um, the view of other people. But in Kirtland, March 27th, 1836, the temple is dedicated. The kind of the grand temple is officially dedicated. And you have a thousand Mormons who attend the dedication ceremony. It's really growing at this point. Yeah, it is growing. And witnesses say that angels were present, the wind blew, and there was a pillar of fire. There we go, the institutional history again. So during the dedication. They also said they saw Jesus there. Well, yes, I was getting to that. I was I was trying to phrase this in a way that. That's the that's the crux of this whole situation. Is right. Like Jesus, so, Jesus was also there. Right. So Jesus visits. Mm-hmm. Um, and Moses and Elijah. Moses, Elijah. Elias. Yes. Yeah. It, it was a party. It was a party. It was what it was. Um, November of 1836. So Smith has had encounters with, you know, the police in the past. 1836 in November of that year, he forms a bank, the Kirtland Safety Society Bank. But there's a, you know, a, a banking, a nationwide banking collapse happens, including panic the panic of 1837 is what we would call that, right? Mm-hmm. And the panic affects the Kirkland Kirtland Safety Society Bank as well. So now he's being accused of financial impropriety. Um, There's also this continued focus on him demanding sexual access to the wives of church members. And to young women. And to young women. Very young women. Yes. And so you have these detractors who start publishing stories about him in their newspapers. Um, And I think there was only one issue before it went under, but just really explosive content and information about what this guy's up to. And so people are pretty disgusted. You know, this guy's coming in and he's been convicted of many different, um, you know, fraud schemes. Uh, He's taking people's money. He's, Uh, trying to create his own bank. He's stealing people's wives. Like that's not very popular. You know, I mean, yeah, there's a lot of followers at this point because 
at this moment, it's a cult. It's a Jim Jones kind of a cult at this point with the number of followers. But there are thousands of other people there who are not followers who are completely unamused by this behavior. I mean, this is very unamusing to them. Stealing his wife and such. Cowdery turns on Smith. Yes, because he wanted his wife. <laughs> yeah, he accuses Smith of yeah. adultery. Yeah, because he goes, hey, can I have your wife? He's like, no, you can't have my wife, and then turns on him. And then he's the one who's, like, leading the charge against him, right? In in Kirtland, Ohio. So Smith yeah. absconds, um, goes to Missouri along with uh, his family. Thousands of people follow him to Caldwell County. Smith starts to make new plans. We're going to build a new temple here. By the way, Cowdery is no longer... Uh, a priest um, or an elder. He's excommunicated from the church. He basically excommunicates anybody who criticized him back in Kirtland. That's a cult. It certainly seems like it at this point. Uh, yeah. Um, point. And then July 4th, Rigdon, who was that Baptist pre- minister who had mm-hmm. folded his entire congregation, and gives a very provocative speech. Where he says Mormons will vigorously defend themselves and says their neighbors are seeking a war of extermination against the Mormons. See, there we've got like the, um, you know, what we were talking about with the Branch Davidians mm-hmm. last week. You know, you've got this idea that the end times are upon us, that there's a war between good and evil. And that, you know, we're going to defend this faith to the end. And I mean, a very similar uh, rhetoric pops up. Mm-hmm. So now it turns to civic matters. So a group of Mormons attend attempt to vote in a state election that summer. And non-Mormons try to stop them. And there's kind of mob violence that takes place. Because they vote as a block. Right. And that, like, that really disrupts local politics badly. And, and that's another, like, mix-up with the Masonic, you know, the Freemasons. Like, when you've got a thousand people there voting as a block, it really screws up democracy. You know, right. like, they're not well, happy with it. So the governor of Missouri, Loburn Boggs, <laughs> that name, um, he says Mormons either have to be driven out of the state or wiped out. Mm-hmm. So what is a mob? This do? is the, I mean, this is the institutional history, though, that the Mormon, the LDS Church, loves to talk about is the persecution, the persecution. But right? it is verifiable. We know this. It happened. is verifiable. They are persecuted. Yeah. October thirtieth, an anti-mob, an anti-Mormon mob, attacks a church at a place called Hans Mill, and they kill seventeen people. Children Who are amongst those. those seventeen people? Yeah, children. Children. Yeah. No, it's, it's terrible. Mm -hmm. And the opposition, you know, doesn't really take into account that there's kids involved and all this kind of stuff. And it's just like, there's a decree that we're just going to exterminate the Mormons. And so there is certifiable evidence that yes, they are persecuted. They're murdered. uh, Well, Smith's arrested and charged with treason at this point. Right. And there's no, I mean, the whole idea of freedom of religion at this point is, uh, is kind of out the door, but you have to think about like freedom of religion 
to what end? If your religion is telling you to defraud people and to steal their wives, like bigamy is a crime. Right. Bigamy is still a crime. crime, right? So it's like, to what extent do you defend somebody's religious leanings, right? Or this group's religious leanings when they're breaking the law time and time again, you know? So Smith is sentenced to death. Right. But. The executioner wouldn't do it. He wouldn't do it. Mm -mm. I think there's a little doubt in the executioner's mind. Well, we've got these American values, right? Mm -hmm. So Smith's in jail. Meanwhile, Brigham Young kind of moves the rest of the church up into Illinois. And initially the community in Illinois is pretty welcoming. And they mm. established this new town, Nuavu, which means beauty. It's taken. And from- it's actually the biggest town in Illinois for a while. It, it's bigger, than, bigger Chicago. than Chicago, it's which is a huge Chicago. deal. Yeah. 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 It's interesting how you pronounce it. I always thought it was Navu, but it's. Oh, maybe it is Navu. I don't know. I just, um, I always assume that. Eventually, Smith uh, goes there. He becomes the mayor and military leader. Yes. Yeah, so they they start a thousand army. person army, and it's about the third of the size of the U.S. Army at this point. Mm-hmm. Right? That's threatening. July twelfth, eighteen forty three. Smith starts to announce new revelations. First, he said Boy. the dead can be baptized. This is a practice that continues to this day. And we can, next time we'll talk a little bit about the history of the Mormon church baptizing deceased Jewish people. There's a lot to unpack there. There is. Uh, The second thing he announces in his revelation is that polygamy is not only permissible, but God actually requires it. Now, what's interesting is this. Initially, Joseph Smith's wife, Emma, really opposes this. I mean, wouldn't you? But Brigham Young doesn't like it either. Who does? Besides the sister wives guy. This, the the polygamy really starts to crystallize anti-Mormon sentiment. And this community that had initially accepted the men now become very skeptical. Joseph Smith, at the time of his death, is rumored to have had 25 wives. And this, again, is the hallmark of cult leaders. Unmitigated sexual access to all followers. Now, Brigham Young in 1843 says he doesn't like this idea. By the time of his death, a handful. 20 wives. That's a lot of wives. It's a lot of trouble. So now we've got this guy who's in charge of a community that's the largest city in the state, has an army that could challenge the U.S. Army in general. Oh, absolutely. And in 1844. Because it's concentrated, right? That's the other thing. In 1844, he declares his intent to run for president of the United States. This is like Kanye of 1844. Um, Without the music and the tennis shoes. I mean, if he'd been given a longer time to live, who knows what he would have produced. Now, there is, at this point, a newspaper that has arisen in the community 
that's very critical of Smith and says that Smith's getting further and further away from the original message of the church. Mm-hmm. So in late spring, Smith encourages his followers to destroy the newspaper. And they, they do, because they only they get one issue out. Yeah, they get one issue and then they're destroyed. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's called the Nauvoo Expositor, right? Uh-huh. And that Smith and some cons- co-conspirators are arrested by state authorities. Um, and he and his brother Hiram are in jail. And here's where we don't exactly know what happens. An anti-Mormon get hazy. Yeah. An anti-Mormon mob goes there ostensibly to lynch Smith. But there was supposed to be a mob of people going to free Smith as right. well, right? And everybody had guns. Everybody had guns. Well, and so did he. So, so him did- and his brother Hiram, they had been being snuck weapons into the jail so they had guns they had batons they had they had all sorts of knives weapons and stuff and so there was going to be like this big showdown at the jail right all we know is this smith's body leaves the jail on the third floor and hits the ground leaves the- <laughs> well we don't know we don't know whether is he, he was- defenestrated well, we, we don't know whether he was shot and was dead and his body was thrown out. We don't know whether he shot himself while jumping out, which seems unlikely. We don't know. We don't know whether it was somebody who was anti-Mormon shot him or somebody who was Mormon, but maybe didn't like what he was doing or Mormon and it was an accident. We don't know what happens, but we know Smith is dead at this point. And his brother. And his brother. And that causes a crisis because his brother I have my to take over. I mean, I have my theories. Do you think it was planned for both of them by Brigham Young? Do we need another conspiracy episode? I, I think this is a prevalent conspiracy theory. Well, I think that it's also really connected, though, again, to the Freemasons, because they were getting really pissed about the Mormons getting too mm-hmm. involved in their affairs and too involved in local politics and too involved um, in kind of just swaying the way things were going in that region. And so there's this theory, too, that the Freemasons got together and went in and were like, we got to just kill this guy. Mm-hmm. And we don't know. We don't know what happened. We don't know. What we do know there's, there's, is that him and his brother end up dead, and then there's a crisis of who's going to take over this new religion. Mm-hmm. And it's at a it's at a crucial point, right? Because it could have just gone away. Yeah. But there's new leadership that comes forth that so, makes it stronger than ever. So next time we're going to pick up this story, and and Brigham Young kind of become is the new leader of the church. But I think what Brigham Young does and why my engagement with Mormonism, as far as an historian goes, is Mormons become an essential component in the story of the American West. Absolutely. I think they're an essential component of American history in general. I mean, when we're talking Second Great Awakening, I mean, it's like understanding Mormonism, it's like, wow, it's like core 19th century Americana. Well, right. right. And it's also part of a conversation that happens in the second half of the 19th century about what does religious freedom really look like? 
what do we want it to look like? Mm-hmm. Because you're going to have other groups that start to kind of assert they have a right to practice their religion as they see fit. In East Coast urban centers, you're going to have Catholics start to exercise a lot more control in those cities. Mm-hmm. Um, on the West Coast, you get Chinese and South Asian immigrants. And there's a real conversation that a contentious conversation that takes place about what is viewed as a legitimate religion and what is not. So next time we'll pick up with Brigham Young and his trek West, the establishment of Utah. It is. It's a good place to leave off. Um, Yeah. It's, we have tried not to make mistakes in this episode. If we did, please let us know. This is not our area of expertise at all. Um, but we wanted to give you a, a kind of a broad overview of how this took place. Um, this is not my area of expertise, but I do get very passionate about it. And I do once again, want to recommend the book under the banner of heaven. Yes. Really good book. All right. Well, until next time, I'm Jeff. And I'm Hillary. Thanks for joining. Thank mm-hmm. you.